Hey, you are tuned into the Bold Church podcast. My name is Yasmin Ruhi. I am one of the lead pastors here. We're so excited that you can join us for today's talk. We hope it blesses you. We hope it encourages you. And if you find it useful, go ahead and send it to someone else whose day you can bless. If you want to join us, we meet live every Sunday morning. If you want to find out our times or where we're meeting, head to our website at bold.church or head to our Instagram at boldchurch. SV. Thank you so much and enjoy today's talk. Come on, who's excited for church? Can we get a little bit more? Who's excited for church? Come on, if we have not met, my name is Ali, and six years ago, my wife and I, we created this place called Bold with a Dream. We call it our God Dream. We wanted to create a place where not only could you come passionately worship God, but it's a place where you come explore God and ask questions. And before I jump into my sermon, I just want to make a correction, a date change. We are going to Mexico on a mission trip next year. When? I don't know. I think it's a month after Easter. Um, we're looking for people who want to go bring the ethos, the culture of this church, and bless the people of Mexico. And so we're having an interest meeting on November 12th. If you're, you want to go, we would love to have you. And if you're new to our church, let me just tell you, I'm so excited because we're on a collection of talks called Explore God. And this collection of talks really is very unique in the Bay Area. 150 churches, for the first time ever, are going through this collection talks at the exact same time. But I didn't like the name. I didn't like the messages. So we're, we're kind of mixing it up, and we're talking about things that uh, what I would call the, the collection talks, we're going to name it this, the elephant in the room. What are those things that are between you and God? Elephants. That are holding you back from trusting God, believing God, placing your faith in him. And really, our culture uses this language, the elephant in the room. We're going to attack them. Let's go after them. Faith does not hurt. Doubt does not hurt your faith. It actually strengthens it when you ask those questions. And so some of the questions we're going through are spicy, are provocative. So on your screen. They're definitely clickbait. And uh, today is a crazy message. I'm going to need a lot of prayer. It's simply this. Why does God in the Bible appear to be such a bloodthirsty, vengeful, vindictive egomaniac? Now, normally when we, if you've been to our church, our tribe, we're a loud church. And normally I tell you to turn to your neighbor and say something funny. We're not going to do that today. I need you to look at your pastor and say, good luck with that one, bro. Let me pray real quick and we will get started. Thank you, Jesus that you have given me words to say. I want to help, God, would you help me preach this word? God, would you give us ears to hear and a heart to understand your word that we may understand your heart better, God? God, may the intention of your character be evident. May you be glorified this morning. Ultimately, God, we want to love you more, look like you more, talk like you more. We want to walk in one way, but we want to walk out another. And if you believe that everybody said, everybody said, in 1794, a dude by the name of Thomas Paine, one of our founding forefathers, wrote a book called The Age of Reason. And he said this, whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous execution, the unrelenting vindictiveness, which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that it be called the word of a demon than the word of God. Well, bless your warm little heart, Thomas Paine. Bless it, bless it, good. Richard Dawkins, 200 years later, echoes the same ethos when he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. Yeah. 
a vindictive, bloodthirsty, now you know where we got the title from, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. And if you know what those words mean, you're smarter than me. And no, I'm not going to tell you how many times I practice those words. But there are a few grammar Nazis that kept me up at night, so I had to. But if we're honest, these are thoughts that we've wrestled with. These are thoughts that we've had. Because when you, when you read the scriptures around the words of Jesus, he's unlike anyone in human history. He's the, most, he's the nicest. He's the kindest. Even when people persecuted him, he loved them. That, that was never the case before Jesus. There are actually historians that say the word humility was never even our vocabulary until Jesus came. And then you, yet you read the, the first book of the Bible, and this same God floods the whole earth in killing it. The same God that, that orders the execution of entire nations, men, women, and children, what kind of God is that? that that says that the only way to appease our relationship, I need a blood sacrifice. And then all you got to do is turn the page and confront it with Jesus, who says, don't just love those who love you. Love your enemies. Bless them. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. And there's this tension, if we're honest, that it appears we got two gods in the Bible. Or he's schizophrenic. Maybe he, he hasn't gone through puberty yet. And this is the, the tension that I faced the first time I went to church. I went to a church plant in L.A., and uh, I remember being part of the, the setup team. We would show up to a gym at a high school, roll out carpets, set up 250 chairs. Why? To create environments so that people far from God can experience him. And I remember on Sundays, we'd hear about this loving Jesus who was a friend of sinners. There had been no one like him in human history. And then on Wednesday, we'd go to Bible study. And we'd, we were studying the, the sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua. And you go to chapter 7, and God says, I want you to go to this country and just destroy it. And we're like, but why? What did the little kids do? Remember the guy leading the Bible study at the time? He was also new to the faith, but he was the only one who was kind of married with kids. And he's like, listen. The guy, when any parent knows, this is him saying this, by the way. He's like, any parent who's a parent for the very first time, they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes they lose their temper, and God, sometimes he, just, he lost his temper and killed some kids. He just did what we all wanted to do. But God kind of matured and figured out this parenting thing, and nothing could be further from the truth. Why? Because Malachi chapter 6, verse 3 says this, I, the Lord, do not change. You, you think he's changed. You think he's different, but he's the same. He... Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God on the first page is the God on the second page. He's the same God. And yet there's this perception that the God of the Old Testament, he's mean, he's vindictive. And the God of the New Testament, he's nice. And so it creates this tension. Are we talking about two gods? Maybe he's a God with multiple personalities. Maybe he's bipolar and just didn't forget to take his medication one day, you know. Maybe he's going through puberty. He's maturing. My husband, the first year, he was a moron. Now, he, after 10, he's, he's not that bad. Maybe God's like that. But Jesus makes it super clear. I'm the same God. Look what he says in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. What's so interesting that you can't catch in the English is the word word is the word logos. 
And in that culture, the, the Romans, they worshiped knowledge. Knowledge was the supreme thing. It was the thing that everyone wanted. The more knowledge you had, the more you were esteemed. It was worshiped in that culture. So John, the apostle who wrote this, had a little play on words. He took the word logos and he personified it in the person of Jesus. So if you can take that word, it says, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And listen, this is the best part. And Jesus became flesh. He's trying to communicate Jesus existed before he became a man 2,000 years ago. And then in verse 14, he says this. If you really know me, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is trying to make it abundantly clear. The guy in the Old Testament and me are the same God. So what do we do with this tension? Which God is it? Is it Jekyll and Hyde? Is it, it he's angry one day and not the other? Like, which one is it? Is God like Psalm 16? For you make known to me the path of life. I want that God who wants to give me purpose in life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Anybody ever, be, like, be discouraged? There's that one friend that you call that just encourages you. God's that person. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that who God is? Or is God this one? Hebrews 10, verse 31. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sounds like a gang member to me. <laughs> Which one is he? Jekyll or Hyde? Is he loving or is he, is he angry? Is, or it just depends on which day you get him. And the reality is we need to take a step back and realize who we're evaluating. I'm going to ask this question. What do we know about God? Because it's easy to judge him based on his actions, but let's judge him based on his character, who he is, and his attributes. And there's the one truth I need you to get. God is unchanging and unchangeable. Let me kind of exemplify this. Ladies, how many ladies in the room today? Most of you ladies, you know what you did before you came to church? You put on makeup. Some of you use a spray paint gun. We love you. I'm not hating on you. But why did you do that? Because you want to look better. What do you do when you're perfect? You can't do anything to improve yourself. Fellas, why do you go to the gym and work on buys and chest only all the time? Because you want your shirt to be full. You want to look good on the beach because you're trying to get stronger. What do you do when you have all strength? See, God doesn't take vitamins. God doesn't read books to grow in knowledge, and he doesn't need to do anything to look better. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's all-powerful. He's unchanging and unchangeable. Why? Because he's already perfect. And before we judge him, let's, let's get a handle on not just his attributes, but his character. Psalm 118 says this, he is good and his love endures forever. Psalm 119 says, God is good and you do good. Psalm 145, the Lord is good. Good to all. Genesis 131, God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. I wrote it like this, God is good, everything he does is good, and everything he made is good. And we've got to wrestle with this idea. We see the actions that are not very good sometimes, but his character is good. And I'm going to try to bridge that gap, just follow along. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that in all things, someone say all things, God works for the good. Which means even when someone does evil to you, God has the power, because he's omniscient, to use that for your good. So not only is God good, he, can, he does good towards you. And probably the most descriptive attribute and character of God is found in 1 John 4, verse 9. God is love. 
He is love. Let's just evaluate this God we're judging for a moment. He's unchanging and unchangeable. He is good, does good, and does good to all. And not only that, it's better. He does good on our behalf, even when others do evil to us. And this God is love. But the problem is, when we evaluate God and his actions, we judge him. And I wrote like this, we incorrectly judge God, not because of his actions are bad, but because our definition is wrong. See, if God is love, that's how he describes himself, that means he's the one that defines love. The problem is we project our definition of love on God, and it ain't the same definition. In the scriptures, love is an action. In our culture, love is a feeling. We say things like, I love In-N-Out, I love Taco Bell. Even the great theologian Ron Burgundy says, I love lamp. But in the scriptures, love is more than a feeling. Love is doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Love is giving the other person what they don't deserve when they need it the most at great personal cost to yourself. Love is costly. And often what we do is we project a distorted view of God, love onto God. And in our culture, I wrote like this, love often in our culture is an amoral thing. It's often used and weaponized by those who know very little about God. They use this phrase, God is love, as a, as a shield to protect them from being judged, to protect them from being criticized. God, God, God is love. You can't judge what I say. You can't judge what I do. You can't judge me. And the moment you do that, you have reduced love to this amoral. It's not wrong or right. It doesn't call you to any actions. It doesn't tell you what to do. But let's just take that analogy and project that onto a figure. I want you to look at Grandpa Joe on the screen. This is the most famous old person on Instagram. You've probably seen him before. Imagine this, this God of ours is 80 years old, walks really slow, right? Sometimes stumbles over his words. If you can't picture that, just close your eyes and think of Joe Biden for a second. <laughs> Can we focus, please? I'm trying to preach. But imagine Joe Biden, he's the personification of this amoral love. There's no right or wrong. He's not going to tell you what to do. And let's say the grandkids come over. The kids go, we want ice cream. Do what you want. Eat ice cream until your teeth fall out. And he goes, Grandpa Joe, can we, can we play with knives? Do whatever you want. And Grandpa Joe, can we throw the dishes? Can we, can we color on the walls? Can we do anything we want? You watch TV all day, eat all the ice cream, do whatever you want. And here's my question for you. If if you think this sort of carefree, immoral, amoral, there's no right or wrong way to raise a kid, is this really the truest, most honest form of love? Because all I've done is take the projection of love in our culture and put it on God. You wouldn't, there's not one parent in here that would let that dude babysit your kids. <laughs> Isn't that funny that we wouldn't let him babysit our kids, but we want him to be our God? Make it make sense. Let's go further in this analogy. Let's say Uncle Joe, Grandpa Joe, eats porridge for dinner and falls asleep, leaves the front door open, and one of the four kids, his grandkids, runs out, plays in the street, the sun is going down, and someone nefarious comes by, kidnaps the kid, rapes, tortures this little boy, and then puts it on social media for the whole world to see. Shouldn't Grandpa Joe get angry? Or is he just carefree? Here's what I know would happen if that was your son. If you knew who that was in the video, you would do one of two things. 
you'd grab a baseball bat or a gun, and you'd go for that guy. Because you love your children. Grandpa Joe would be like, we have three more. We're still 75% of the time good. He wouldn't say that. You would expect Grandpa Joe to get angry, to do something. That's what I'm trying to show you. I wrote like this. We must understand love and justice are intrinsically connected. If you love something, you must have justice for it. If you don't have justice for something when it's getting hurt, it means you don't love it. Let me prove it to you. On the way in, I stepped on three spiders. No one's calling PETA. And some of you on the way to church, you swerved to try to hit cats. God bless you. Because no one cares when a cat dies. But the moment you love something and that thing that you love, real biblical love, is getting hurt, you have a sense of justice. You want to protect it. Which means God's wrath, his justice, is not a sign of his anger. It's a sign of his love. Look what it says in Psalm 89, verse 14. I know this sermon is heavy and deep, but you asked for it. Righteousness and justice. Someone say justice. Are the foundation of his throne, and love and faithfulness go before him. I was reading a, listening to a theologian this weekend. He says, the moment you disconnect justice from truth and righteousness, it's no longer justice. The reason our culture has a weird form of justice, which I call cancel culture, is when you have a wrong definition of love, you'll have a wrong expression of justice. Cancel culture is just the, the man's trying to extract justice in the wrong form of way. What is cancel culture? If you don't think the way that I think, if you don't speak the way that I speak, if you don't believe the things that I believe, I cancel you. There's no redemption in that. Imagine if God treated us that way. If God didn't give us a second chance, which is why cancel culture is a perverted form of justice. It's so unlike God. It's not that cancel culture is wrong. It's that their definition of love is wrong. And we are wired to want justice. Whether you are a believer or not, it's ingrained. Why? Because we have love in our hearts. And we are looking for a God who will deal rightly with sin. We are looking for a God to end evil. A God who is love, that ends human oppression, who cares about murder and rape and incest and the mistreatment of others. And we want a God not like Grandpa Joe who does nothing. We want a God who is love and steps into it. Love is an action. Love has an appropriate response. So my question is, when we read the scriptures and we're encountered with these violent, often unspeakable actions where God responds to injustice, is God's response appropriate or inappropriate? Look what the theologian Rebecca Manley says. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it is his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. What she's trying to say in one sentence is God has justice because he loves, not because he's angry. Any parent would respond in the same way. Why is God so angry at sin? For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate Oh, we don't like that word. We, you hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful, 
you, Lord, detest. In Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God hates sin because it, it grieves him, the effect it has on his kids. And what's the effect it has on his kids? Romans 6, 23, for the wage of sin is death. God comes in because sin is killing his kids. God's not Grandpa Joe sitting on the couch watching someone murder his children and saying, oh, what's on Jeopardy tonight? No, God gets angry and he gets involved because he doesn't want to see his kids hurt. So it's the appropriate response when God truly loves us. Last week I did something unique where I gave you three minutes of fire hose theology. If we can put the countdown on the screen, I'm going to do it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made everything in it. Everything God created is good. He made the man and woman very good. In the image and likeness, he created them. And he gave them this command. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Be fruitful, which means go have sex. Our God is an awesome God. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And because God is the God of life, he, because he's a good parent, he warned his children, don't eat from this tree. It's like telling a two-year-old, don't put your hand in the outlet or you'll die. And he warned them. But we you know what happened. God warned his children, but man chose to disregard the coming loving kindness of God. And so sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this same way, death came to all people, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God gives us the greatest promise in Scripture, that he looks to the woman and says, through your seed will come a Savior. And then he looked at Satan and says, this, this seed, this Savior, you're going to strike its heel, but he's going to crush your head. And then he continues and says, this one, this one that will be the Savior, he will come fully man and fully God. He will come in the same flesh and blown that covers the two of you now, but with righteousness unmatched by any man. Then he will do what no man can do. As the perfect man, he will undo what every man has done, because he is the perfect, righteous, and holy one in the flesh. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God gave this amazing promise of Jesus, but the virus of sin... That's the whole message of the book of Genesis begins to spread even though they know God. And all of humanity is infected. And God says, I need to raise up for my people a nation who will be set apart for me, whom will, I will bring the promise of Jesus. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verse, 25, verse 5 says, the Lord saw how wicked, how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And God said, I will send a flood which looks like an over-the-top response, but the reason why God had to do that because he's an ever-faithful, always-loving, present father and God, and he chose to push back the virus of sin to protect the promise he made in Genesis chapter 3 because if he allowed sin to spread, there would be no savior. And I wrote like this, God will stop at nothing to redeem a people that he loves, to redeem a people that he cares about. Why? Because he has unconditional love for them. Stop the clock. So anytime you see God act in a vengeful way, it's not that God is vengeful. It's that justice and love come from the same spring. His response is what any parent would do. He has to push back sin to save life. I wrote like this, God is patient and full of mercy, and he relents. He relents in sending judgment for the hope of salvation for all. Now, Having been a pastor for over a decade now, I know that this argument, although theological, still does not tickle the fancy of many of you. And you have pushback in your heart, but you're afraid to say it. So I'll say what you're, not, you're afraid to say. 
I wrote it like this. If God in the Bible isn't a bloodthirsty, vengeful, vindictive, egomaniac, what about Noah and the ark? There are three objections I hear all the time for people who are wrestling with faith or even Christians who struggle to trust God in a greater and deeper way, which is literally why we named the title The Elephant in the Room. What's that elephant? For some of you, it's Noah. You can't read the Bible and realize, how can a good God flood the whole earth? And the reality is, this is a picture that's distorted. God in love told Noah, I need to start over, but I want you to build a boat. And look what In our minds, we have this image where Noah is by himself. He's not telling anyone, and he's getting the boat, and everyone else dies. That's not the picture which Scripture paints. In in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says this. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher. Someone say preacher of righteousness. See, in our minds, all we have this image of Noah, he's he's a construction worker. And all he's doing is hammering nails to make a boat. But this dude was a preacher. And how long did it take him to build the boat? 120 years. Which means for 120 years, Noah stuck his hand out and said, who wants to come with me in the boat? God's going to flood the earth, and he loves you and doesn't want anyone to perish. And for 120 years, they made fun of him. So when the flood comes, it's not a reflection of the evilness of God. It's the evilness of us. Objection number two. If God of the Bible isn't such a bloodthirsty, vindictive, egomaniac, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? This is the one I get most common, specifically from unbelievers who are questioning, how could God kill everyone in an entire city for their sin? Isn't this a picture of a vindictive God? And the reality is we forget Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, where it says this, the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. God had to step in. God had to do something. If he didn't push back sin, there would be no Jesus. And look what happens in Genesis chapter 18. When Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous from the wicked, train the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, God. Will you not judge, will not the judge of all the world do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold, he clearly went to this church. If you've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is, is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for, the, for a lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if there are only 40 found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. What if 30 can be found? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. What if 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And the final asked by Abraham, what if only 10 can be found? And he said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And God couldn't find 10. Why is God so patient? 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The cross is the only place where you see the full love of God and the full justice of God in one moment. 
in one moment you see a God who says, I love you so much, I'm willing to die for you. And at the same time, you see the justice, the wrath of God, not on us, but on Christ. And God had to allow Jesus to come into humanity. If he didn't, the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah would have spread. And Romans 10 says this, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus, it's not works, it's not doing, whole, it's not feeding the homeless, it's not being a nice person, it's not being a great neighbor, not being a good uh, citizen of San Jose. None of those things save you. Only Jesus does. Acts 4, 4 verse 12 says, salvation is found in no one else. There's this common theme, all... All religions lead to the same place. They do not. Only one road leads there, according to Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which, given to mankind which we must be saved. And if God had not come through and done unimaginable acts, Jesus would not have been born. I want to show you this picture on the screen for a moment. I've been haunted by this image all week. This is a picture of a hospital in Gaza where doctors are limited in the number of supplies that they have. And the number of children coming in forces the doctor to make an impossible choice. He has two children, and one may make it, he doesn't know, and one for sure will make it. So the doctor has to make this choice. I need to take the medicine that I want to give this one and give it to this one. I'm going to lose this child, but I know I can save this child. And no one, no one is questioning that doctor right now. No one's saying, you evil, vindictive doctor. And yet God has to make the same choice. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities, he goes, I want this child to live, but it can't. So I have to destroy it to save these. Because the sin in this one will affect this one, and Jesus will never come. Before we judge God and his injustice, recognize God is love. And everything he does is good. And he's unchanging. And he's never done evil. I came out of Islam. The God of the Islam can lie and steal and kill. Jesus is not like that. He's not a God that will do sin, go against his character. He only does good all the time. And so when we see something that doesn't make sense, we have to trust that it is good. The third argument that I hear all the time. If God of the Bible isn't a bloodthirsty, vengeful, vindictive egomaniac, what about hell? And it's shocking for people to hear this, but Jesus spoke more about hell than prayer and faith. 13% of Jesus' teaching was on hell. Half of the parables, and there are 40 parables in the scriptures, half of them are on hell. And I want to give you this truth to encourage some of you. Hell is a place prepared for the devil and his demons. And I want to add cats, but I didn't think you'd believe me. We needed some humor. got really heavy. When you realize it was not created for me and you, I think it's the perfect place for the most evil person in, in human history. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. God wants to give life. When I consider who hell was created for, I'm like, hell yes. Matthew 18, verse 12. Darkness, where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds good to me, given who it was prepared for. Mark 4, verse 49, verse 43. Where the fire never goes out. I know it sounds hard, but given who God created hell for, I think it's a perfect plan. In John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the scriptures, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is how much God loves us and doesn't want us to experience this place. For the wage of our sin is death and forever separation from God, but the gift of God, come on, is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And our Lord says, whoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and will never go there. But look how Jesus finishes this verse. Chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, in the same way in the days of Noah, Noah stuck out his hand and said, get in the boat. Christians stick out their hands and say, get in Christ. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because sin has affected us all. God must judge sin because love and justice are connected. And if you reject the offer of God, Jesus says in Matthew 25, depart from me. You are accursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I wrote like this, hell is a place of forever separation from God. Imagine for a moment, Grandpa Joe, our fake version of God, finds the guy who raped, abused, and hurt that child. Would he ever let that person babysit his kids again? Never. In the same way, God needs to separate sin from heaven because he doesn't want that around his children. But he gives you the choice. Will you receive and accept the offer that God gives? C.S. Lewis put up the offer like this. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. C.S. Lewis said this about hell. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Think about God. For 120 years, he stuck his hand out to Noah in that generation. He stuck his hand out to Sodom and Gomorrah. God relents on sending judgment. And he has a desire for everyone that none, none should perish. He wants everyone to be saved. But God is such a gentleman. He'll take his desires and put them to the side and give you what you want. I wrote like this, God's a gentleman. And he'll give you what you desire. He will not force himself on anyone. And the question I want to end with is simply this. What do you desire? What do you want? If I can communicate the heart of God, he loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. I know from the vantage point, we love the words of Jesus, but we're scared by the God of the Old Testament. They are the same God. And God doesn't want any of his kids to perish. If my daughter was sick in the hospital and she needed a blood transfusion and they looked in the entire world and the only person they found was me and I was the match, I'd say, take my blood, I'll die for her. Any parent would make that choice, which is why Jesus left heaven, knowing that you could never get to him, so he came to you. He showed his love by dying on a cross. And yet love and justice are connected. Sin must be punished. And Jesus doesn't want you to experience the wage of sin, so he took sin upon himself. And God extends his hand, saying, I love you. Christianity is not about coming to a building and 
karaoke a bunch of songs for 30 minutes. It's about walking with the living God. He walked with Noah. He walked with Abraham. And he wants to walk with you. He wants to do life with you. He wants to give you purpose in life. But he's such a gentleman. He'll just stick his hand out and wait, not wanting anyone to perish. He's not, he's not bloodthirsty and vindictive. He's patient. He's kind. He's slow to anger. And he's better than the justice we have in our culture. Jesus is nothing like cancel culture. He forgives those who should never be forgiven. And the reason why is I'm one of them. And he extends that offer to you. Do you want forgiveness? It's free. I get every eye closed and every head bowed. God, thank you for this truth that you're different. You're not like the people in our culture. Your love is like nothing we've ever experienced before, God. God, it's inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive that you invite everyone to come and receive the salvation. But it's exclusive that you are the only way to God. God, I'm believing that there are people in this room who heard this invitation of life, this invitation of salvation. And for the first time in their life, they see you, God, in their heart, extending your hand to them, saying, I want a relationship with you. With every eye closed and with every head bowed. If that's you this morning and you want to start a relationship with the living God, I want to count to three. I want you to just shoot your hand up because I'd love to pray for you. On the count of three, one, two, three. If that's you this morning, just shoot your hand up. Amen. I see your hand. Amen. Just say this out loud. Everyone. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving heaven for me. Thank you, God, for taking upon my sin, for living the life I didn't live, and then dying the death I should have died. I repent. I turn from my ways. And I choose to follow you. I receive your free gift of salvation. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can follow you all the days of my life? I also feel led to pray for some of you in this room. There are elephants. There are objections. You want to go deeper with God, but for years, maybe months, there's been this elephant in the room that you just thought God's this mean God. And I want to challenge you to repent. He's more loving than you could ever imagine. God, I pray for those in this room that wrestle with the goodness of God, given your actions, like Noah's Ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, and even hell, God. And yet all of them are explicit clear signs of your love for us that you want us to have life and life abundantly and there's only one who came to steal, kill and destroy I pray Jesus in our heart that this elephant in our heart would be torn down 
that the goodness and the character of God would be elevated in our heart, that we would love you and trust you in deeper ways. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. And everybody said, Hey, thank you so much for listening today. If you want to follow us on social media and just stay up to our current events, our social media handle is Bold Church SV. That's Bold Church SV for Silicon Valley. We hope you stay blessed and we'll see you soon. Thank you.